This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this week on Face the Nation, has the Democratic momentum heading into the midterm elections stalled as economic headwinds pick up? Democrats' hopes of a last-minute economic rebound before Election Day were dashed with yet another round of sobering inflation numbers, indicating that the Federal Reserve's rate hikes so far haven't helped. President Biden is talking up the party's economic efforts on the campaign trail and warning about the alternative. Republican wins, inflation is going to get worse. It's that simple. But will voters buy what he's selling with prices so high and no relief in sight? Infrastructure is at the heart of the administration's economic plans. We'll talk to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and University of Michigan economist Betsy Stevenson. She'll tell us about the financial pressures facing Americans, especially parents. The global economy is also struggling. Adding to the pressure, Russia's attacks in Ukraine intensify, destroying regional supply lines and energy infrastructure. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markarova, will join us. Then, dramatic video from the congressional investigation into the January 6th attack shows lawmakers pleading for help to secure the Capitol. This is horrendous and all at the instigation of the President of the United States. I'm going to call up the effing Secretary of DLD. We have some senators who are still in their hideaways. They need massive personnel now. Can you we'll learn more about the behind the scenes that day from the authors of a new book, Unchecked. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We are just over three weeks away from midterm election day. Voters are already casting ballots in 18 states and voting will start in eight more this week. What are they focused on and which party do they think should be in control of the House and Senate as well as the 36 states where there are ongoing contests for governor? Our new CBS News Battleground Tracker poll shows the Republicans are still favored to capture the House with an estimated 224-seat majority. That's six seats more than they need to take control. Our last estimates showed Democrats narrowing the gap, but that momentum has stalled. CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto is here to tell us why. Good morning to you, Anthony. What indicates momentum is stalling and why? Good morning, Margaret. So this is the first time since we've updated the tracker throughout the summer and into the early fall where Democrats haven't been cutting into that Republican lead. And it comes at a time when people think the economy is getting worse. In fact, two thirds of people say that. Now, we've gotten bad news this week about inflation and the way that people interact with that often is gas prices. Well, there's been this stark turnaround. It was in August. People thought they saw gas prices going down. Now, majority says they think that they're going up in their area. So that's one point. But we wanted to understand, how does this connect politically? So I asked specifically, 
who's responsible for this? And are the Democrats and Joe Biden responsible for this? And the answer is somewhat. People understand that there are other factors there. They know there's global factors. They know there's supply issues. But Democrats are on balance seen as having been more harmful than helpful. Now, a president is always somewhat tied to their economy. And Joe Biden, when asked, gets some responsibility for this, not necessarily a lot. But two thirds of people do say they think he and the administration could be doing more. Mm. So all that nets out. Democrats are still losing people for whom the economy is the most important issue. They're still trailing with people who say that their financial situation isn't good. And that is part of the reason that stalled. I, I should add this. Up until now, we've talked a lot about the abortion issue because that's been underpinning a lot of those Democratic gains. It is still critical. Democrats are still winning voters who prioritize the abortion issue. But the thing is, there are not more of them in the electorate now than there were last month. So it's always been this fight about what is this election about to the extent that Democrats cannot make it more about the abortion issue than it has been. That helps keep those those balance of that balance of power right. in place. And turnout is always a factor. We know voter turnout is typically higher in that group 65 and older mm -hmm. for people on fixed incomes. Inflation is really painful. It, what are you seeing? It's really a concern. I'm glad you raise it because what happens is they show concern about inflation, about prices. They also show concern about the stock market because, you know, retirees might have money in the market, of course. So that's out there as well. You're right. They do vote in our models. They are showing up. They are saying they're going to show up. And that's typical for a midterm. So it's really, really an important voting block, Margaret. So, Anthony, what could change here? Yeah, let's look at the possibilities that we can see in the data. Right now, the Republicans have a turnout advantage. More of them say they're enthusiastic. More of them say that they're definitely going to vote. What could get the Democrats in contention to maybe hold the House? It's young people. If young people were to show up more than they say they're going to, you plug that into the, into the model and the Democratic seat number goes up where they're right in contention to maybe get a bare majority. So if you want to know how the Democrats could hold the House, it's young people showing up more than they say they will. On the other hand, let's talk about that Republican turnout advantage. There are so many close congressional districts that it wouldn't take very much for even more of them to flip to the Republicans. So if their turnout advantage goes up even a little bit more, a lot of those seats are going to fall their way. And the model would estimate they would get into the 230s. And that would be an even larger majority. So your takeaway there is, yes, a lot of this comes down to turnout. But that is specifically how. Anthony Salvanto, you're going to be busy. Thank you very much. And races are tightening in the Senate, too. 35 states hold contests November the 8th. And CBS News has identified 10 important ones that could determine the majority. There are five that we're watching very closely. Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Nevada. Later on in the broadcast, we'll be taking a closer look at that Georgia race because it has gotten a lot of attention lately. We want to now turn to the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Good morning and thank you for being here in person. Good to be with you. I want to pick up where we just left off on the polling um, because it looks like Democrats have a problem here. As you heard, more than two thirds of registered voters, 68 percent, think your administration, the Biden administration, could be doing more to combat inflation. This is a top concern for all voters. It's also a top concern for the president. It's one of the reasons why he's made clear that his top economic priority is fighting inflation. Uh, but there's a very clear choice right now between the policies that we're advancing on Capitol Hill and in this administration and the policies that have been put forward legislatively by uh, our Republican friends in Congress. Our focus has been on reducing the pressure of cost of living on families. For example, Take the Inflation Reduction Act. Right? Part of what that does at a time when we have pressure on people because the cost of living is going too high is to cut the cost of things like prescription drugs. In of course, Republicans voted against that. That's and, not right. But they've also made clear right now that they're proposing legislation to reverse that, to repeal that. So you have something like letting Medicare negotiate uh, the, the price of prescription drugs, mm -hmm. something Americans have wanted to happen for years. We finally got it done. The president signed it. Congress passed it. They're already uh, seeking to reverse that. 
So it's a very clear choice, a very clear difference in approaches here right now on Capitol Hill and among office holders, uh, where the focus for uh, for Democrats, the focus for the president, mm-hmm. is to cut that cost of living and to cut the pressure, get people more breathing room at a time where inflation remains a major concern. But it's not just drug prices that are the problem. I mean, across the board, inflation is, is hitting people. The cost of shelter, incredible. Um, the administration's policy, though, to speak about the affirmative, as you say, it's a better platform. So let's talk about it. If you've pumped $3.6 trillion in fiscal spending into the economy and you're not politically getting credit for it and inflation is not coming down, how do you argue to the American people that it's actually the best alternative? Well, because if we hadn't done that, if we hadn't rescued the economy through the American Rescue Plan, we would not have had the 10 million jobs that were created under this president. We wouldn't be seeing some of the lowest unemployment numbers in the history of the republic. Uh, We would be faced with the kinds of problems that we were faced with when the president arrived, which was an economy that was facing a very real risk of freefall. We're in a situation right now where demand has come back. Consumer confidence is up. People have more money in their pockets, and uh, an almost record number of Americans are working. The other There's side of that is record th- inflation, and that's because the su- right. Now. That's because the supply side is straining to keep up with the demand, which is well, why we're also factor. working. Uh, I think really the main factor. But imagine if we hadn't raised demand and supply was even worse which is where we would have been if we hadn't had the uh, infrastructure work, which is helping on the supply side, Mm -hmm. and the rescue of the American economy uh, that has brought back demand. So if anybody's asking, was it a good idea to rescue the American economy? (laughs) The answer is yes. Right. Well, it's not just Republicans who make the argument that fiscal spending contributed to some of the inflation. And in fact, some of the fiscal spending was under the last administration's watch in terms of Mm -hmm. pouring in the rescue funds you're talking about. But the San Francisco Fed has put forward estimates that between three-tenths to three percent of percentage points in recent inflation is due to fiscal spending. In other words, not most of it, right, by those numbers. It's not nothing. So to argue that government spending isn't a contributor here doesn't fully play out. So what is the alternative in a new Congress? Yeah. I mean, are you saying that we've got to stop spending here? We're not going to move on taxes, but we're also not going to pump in more money. Well, again, the best part of the challenge what we no, put part forward. of the challenge we have is the productive capacity of our country racing to keep up. So failing to invest in that wouldn't make the problem better; it'd make it worse. But again, the numbers you just quoted to me would make clear that a majority of inflation is not attributable to fiscal policy. And according to the the numbers that uh, were just in the package just now, the American people understand that. They understand that Mm -hmm. inflation is a global phenomenon, but we are fighting it here at home with measures to take that pressure off of families. And it's why we strongly believe that we should continue in the direction of prioritizing uh, not tax loopholes for billionaires, not uh, corporate profits, but allowing Americans to be able to get by with the income that they're making. Well, we are going to talk to an economist next to, to go through the numbers, but on what the political messaging is. The president said this week that the economy is both strong as hell, but also if there is a recession, it'll be very slight. What exactly is the forecast? Well, look, uh, I mean, forecasting is uh, by its nature something that is a little bit uncertain. What we know is that you, that's political spin. Well, look, I, I don't think anybody could argue that, for example, our unemployment numbers are anything but strong as hell. They're under four percent. That almost never happens. We're uh, at or near the definition of full employment. We also don't have any illusions about the challenges that Americans face with prices. But that's why it's mystifying that as we speak, you got Republicans in Congress uh, arguing against the things that we have done to give Americans a little more breathing room, voting against measures to make prescription drugs cheaper, voting against uh, the $35 uh, insulin cap that's going to be especially important in the environment where you have inflation, Mm -hmm. uh, against the energy credits that are going to help more Americans save on energy. We are squarely focused on making it easier for Americans to get by on their income. I want to get to uh, infrastructure in a moment, but quickly I want to ask you, you know, the president campaigned on a lot of things. Um, paid leave was one of them. And, and Democrats stripped that out of the legislation uh, that they were able to get through. Um, well, I wouldn't describe that as uh, something that Democrats alone did. But uh, yes, obviously, paid didn't leave get wasn't through. part. And yeah, you've got unified control right now, although slim majority. I get it. But in this new scenario we are talking about, and you just saw the numbers, it looks like a very real threat that Republicans will control at least one House. So are you acknowledging that 
basically, you've gotten through what you can get through. Give up on paid leave for the end of the Biden administration. We're not going to give up on anything because these are good policies that are wildly popular among the American people. Most Republicans think this is a good policy, just not most Republicans in Congress. And so uh, in the same way that we were able to get that infrastructure bill through, where a number of Republicans crossed over to work with Democrats on the president's priority, I think any other priority, you have to at least give it a shot. And I would point out, after repeated declarations that the infrastructure bill was dead, the way that that succeeded, as well as the other policy wins we've had, aren't just good news. They yeah. specifically validate the president's theory of change, which is that you, even in a divided Washington, you can get things done, and sometimes you can get them done with bipartisan support. I want to get to infrastructure, but, but you know with paid leave, I was talking about the dispute between Democrats, between Senator Manchin and the rest of the party on that. Well, that, on. that was a Democratic but, but if disagreement even on one paid Republican leave. were prepared to support paid leave, we'd be in a different territory. So let's not let 50 Republicans off the hook yeah. uh, because we couldn't get alignment with one or two Democrats. Okay, so it will be taken up in uh, the new I, Congress? I don't know what the uh, priorities of the new Congress will be. I know that it's a good policy and we'll keep fighting to get it done. Okay, and I'll keep asking about it. <laughs> I want to ask you about infrastructure. So um, you have started doling out some of the sort of allocations here that was part of that more than one um, trillion dollar infrastructure law. You've about $120 billion that you personally, I guess, at the department have discretion over in awarding some of these projects. Where do you prioritize it? Because we've had a number of mayors on this program talk about their frustration that the money's not getting to them, that they know it's been promised, they've spoken to the White House, but it's not getting to Miami, Florida and, and Jackson, Mississippi. Well, look, uh, uh, we've got a lot of discretionary grant programs to run over the course of the next five years. And uh, a lot of applications come in. We say yes to as many as we can. And I can tell you, we're supporting infrastructure improvement right now in every state in the union. Now, even now, even with this wonderful funding, we won't be able to say yes to every single project that every local community wants to do, but we can do more than we've ever done before. And I've been one of those mayors, right? I've been a mayor knocking on the door of the DOT, trying to get funding. And back then, we only had a sliver to work with of what we do now. So, uh, it is amazing what we've been able to see as I've traveled the country uh, with, with good news on everything from port improvements that'll help with our supply chain mm -hmm. to fixing bridges that are so deteriorated that school buses and ambulances can't use them because there's a weight limit uh, to uh, we're in yeah. the Inland Empire, Fontana, California, kids walking, having to compete with traffic basically along a highway mm -hmm. just to walk with school. We're going to fix that. Uh, we're getting so many things done, but it's not going to be overnight. Of course no. it's not. That's well, part of how it works with infrastructure. They've been frustrated that it hasn't been delivered, though it has been promised. But um, I know we have to leave it there today. Mr. Secretary, thank you for coming on the program. We'll be back in a moment. So stay with us on Face the Nation. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We go now to the University of Michigan professor Betsy Stevenson, who previously served as the Department of Labor's chief economist under former President Obama. Good morning to you, Betsy. Good to have you on the program. Um, I, I want to get straight to it. Uh, last week, one of the top Fed officials, Loretta Mester, said inflation has not yet peaked. How much worse will it get in your view? Well, I, you know, I think it's hard to know how much worse it will get because what people really care a lot about is like energy prices where things are really volatile. I think the thing that economists are really worried about is when we strip out uh, those volatile food and energy prices and we look underneath uh, that core inflation and that's the stuff that's hard to bring down. And when that hit, you know, 6.6%, I mean, I think that 
uh, you know, made people very worried about how long that will last. And you know, some of that's because we're going to see housing prices, uh, rental prices continue to go up because a lot of the values of the homes that are already out there are up and that hasn't filtered through into to CPI. And then there are people out there who really their wages are so far below in real terms where they were that they're clamoring for a raise. And, and I think that those are the folks who aren't ready to, to say, you know, uh, I'm going to keep working at my current nominal wage. So I think that's the kind of risk that we're facing right now is we're going to see these increased wage pressure um, that's mm -hmm. going to keep pushing, pushing prices up. I don't think we have to worry, though, that it's going to go much above where it currently is which is that sort of 6.6% as the core underlying inflation, we got to be worried yeah. that it's stuck there. Well, there are plenty of people worried. Based on our CBS News polling, 70% uh, of voters believe the national economy is bad. 53% say their personal financial situation is good. So there's that. But a large part of the economy is consumer psychology here and what the consumer actually does. And the perception is... Not that the economy is strong as hell, as the president said, but that these pricing pressures are hurting. You know, it's such a weird time because we have a record number of job opportunities out there. I mean, it is a great time to look for a new job, to take a new job. And the people who are doing that are getting very large wage increases and are being made better off. And hiring is just continuing, uh, you know, at this really high rate. So if you're thinking about finding work, changing jobs, better using your skills. It's a great economy. If you just want to stay where you're at and yeah. keep buying the stuff you were buying, you're struggling because you're seeing food prices are up. You're seeing medical costs going up. Everything around you is going up a little bit. And if your boss doesn't want to give you a raise, you can't, you know, you can't make ends meet. Well, one of the areas that I know um, you focused on and we want to talk about is the child care and caregiver shortage. That's one area of the economy where um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says there are 100,000 fewer child care workers now than there were before the pandemic. Where did they yeah, so go? The what, what is going on? Okay, well, um, one thing is that we are missing a lot of foreign-born women. I mean, and so that makes us confront the reality, which is uh, immigrant women provide a lot of child care in this economy, and they left. Um, so we just have fewer uh, immigrant women. So that's a direct answer to your question of where did people go? I think what's making everybody really feel the pinch is, you know, the labor supply of parents, parents, you know, the share of parents who are in the labor force, both mothers and fathers, has returned to where it was pre-pandemic. But as you just said, we're missing childcare workers. So no wonder parents feel like they're struggling because now they're trying to do it with less formal care. Um, and I think that, you know, that is causing a lot of stress. And there, that, that problem is getting worse because, look, the median wage of a child care worker is still $12 an hour. Mm -hmm. So you can do better going to McDonald's, Starbucks, Target. There's a lot of jobs out there that's going to pay you more than $12 an hour. And that's making it harder to hire child care workers. It's why in the last job month's report, we saw a decline in the number of child care workers when other things are, are continuing to grow. But if we pay child care workers more, yeah. well, where's that going to come from? That's going to mean increasing the price of child care services. And now we get back to inflation. Well, and, so, you know, the real. Yeah, go no, ahead. Margaret. And we also have teacher shortages around the country. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of uh, female employment and the return to the workforce? Isn't that still a big problem? You know, actually, prime age women are back. So that's our 25 to 54 year old. Uh, so they're, you know. Not it, we, we sort of focus on that age because they're not in school, they're not retired. Um, that age group is back. The problem we had, you know, with teachers, with airline pilots, with a lot of jobs is that people retired early. So we're missing our sort of most skilled older workers, and that's causing some problems. And then on the other end, we didn't train a lot of people in jobs during the pandemic. We didn't have those student teachers in the classroom in 2020 and 2021. And so we are not training young ones. The older ones are retiring early. And then all the burden is falling on these, you know, sort of middle aged uh, teachers, pilots, all sorts of jobs like that. And it's, you know, making the job worse, which is putting mm -hmm. again, sort of upward, you know, wage pressure, which is leading to inflation. 
you know, the thing is people are very upset about inflation and they feel awful about it. But the reality is that inflation hurts some people more than others. Yes. It's not, it's a generalized increase in prices, but not all prices are, you know, raising the same amount. So we've got childcare workers where the price of childcare hasn't gone up to keep up with inflation. And so that's hurting people in the childcare industry. And the result is we have fewer people working in childcare. But we got parents, on the other hand, who can't really afford to pay more for childcare because they couldn't afford to pay for mm -hmm. childcare before we had inflation. And that brings us back to needing a government solution to help ensure that all families can afford high quality childcare. And that's why the next Congress is going to matter so much. And Betsy, thank you so much for talking to us um, about what you're seeing out there. We will take a break and be more back with more Face the Nation, so stay with us. And if you can't watch the full Face the Nation, you can set your DVR, and we are replayed on our CBS News streaming network throughout the day on Sundays. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Hundreds of Russian missiles have rained down on Ukrainian territory over the past week, most of them aimed at civilian targets. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett is in Dnipro, Ukraine with more. Days after unleashing the heaviest bombardment that Ukraine has seen since the invasion began, striking a dozen cities across the country. In a coordinated series of rocket and long-range missile attacks, Russian President Vladimir Putin said there is no need for more massive strikes. For now, at a news conference in Kazakhstan, he said he had no regrets and that Russia is doing everything right. The merciless battering of civilians in frontline cities like Zaporizhia tell a different story. Residents told us a missile slammed into this neighborhood at around 2 in the morning. The missile punched a hole right through this apartment block, causing it to collapse on those inside, tearing apart not just homes, but lives. The blast scattered children's clothes among the trees. At one point, the heavy machinery clearing the rubble stopped. A drone hovered overhead as rescuers worked by hand. And another body was lifted from beneath the debris. Investigators worked to put a name to another victim of Putin's war. Serhii Nikonorov lives in the adjacent apartment and escaped serious injury, but he's so shell-shocked he can hardly speak. My very close friends live there on the first floor, he said. I lost friends on the second floor, too. And yet, despite Russia's onslaught... Troops have lost ground to Ukrainian forces on the battlefield, where the counteroffensive has advanced south at such a rate the Kremlin installed authorities in the city of Kherson and urged residents to evacuate to parts of Russia. In his address last night, President Zelensky switched from Ukrainian to Russian, saying, As for the citizens of Russia who do not want to participate in this criminal war, who surrender to Ukrainian captivity, will save their lives. We visited some of the dozens of those recently liberated villages. The high school that served as a Russian military HQ bears the scars of the battle to wrestle it back. Down the road, we found Oksana still reeling. What did you think when you first saw Ukrainian soldiers here? Happiness. She said, I was just very happy. In tears, she described the terror under Russian occupation saying, we were all suffering. It was so hard and so scary. Now, free from Russian military rule for the first time in months. The next day, following that huge barrage, President Zelensky pleaded with leaders of the G7, specifically the United States, for more air defense systems. And while there has been a pledge by the White House for more advanced weapons, they can't get here quickly enough. Margaret? Charlie Daggett, thank you. And we are joined now by Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova. Madam Ambassador, good to have you back. Um, let's pick up where my colleague just left off. Uh, last time President Zelensky was on this program at the end of September, he talked uh, specifically about the delivery of air defense systems, thanking the United States, but they still have not been delivered. What is the holdup in the delivery of American weapons? 
Thank you for having me and thank you for talking about that. Yes, we still need all the weapons we're talking about with air defense being a priority after these horrible strikes that we all seen returning not only to select cities, but everywhere in Ukraine and especially in Kyiv and infrastructure before the winter. Um, unfortunately, this... Uh, uh, systems are difficult to produce and they're not ready on the shelves waiting, but we're doing everything possible and asking our partners to do everything possible to speed up not only the delivery, but also the ordering of the system. So hopefully uh, you heard your president been very clear on trying to uh, accelerate the delivery of those and we are counting on more systems to be announced and uh, decisions taken to produce because we do need to, to, to secure as many places in Ukraine as possible, as many children in Ukraine as possible mm -hmm. from Russian rockets. It, the Pentagon has said it's still about a month before those naysams come. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about what we just heard on Friday from Russian President Vladimir Putin. He said that the mobilization drive to increase the number of soldiers will end in the next two weeks and that massive strikes are no longer needed. What does your government assess he means by this? What are you preparing for? Well, as we said, you know, 235 days, uh, no limits and no moral uh, restrictions from, from Russian aggressor. So we should be prepared for everything. And it's actually relevant by, at this point what he says, because uh, this uh, uh, partial mobilization has been a big failure. People in Russia do not want to be mobilized. They are not equipped. They are not prepared. They are not motivated. Yes, there are a lot of them. But it has been a, a, a failure in Russia. Uh, they are probably not forcing it because uh, they will have the plant mobilization in, in the autumn. Uh, we don't know. Mm -hmm. all, we, all we are focused on in staying the course and defending our country everywhere and being prepared for uh, anything that can come from the Russian Federation. We have seen all the war crimes. We have seen all the rocket attacks. We have seen them using these Iranian Shahid drones on civilian residential areas killing families. So uh, what he says is actually irrelevant because what they do and everyone see what they do, this is what we have to pay attention to. I want to ask you about um, billionaire Elon Musk. Uh, he seemed to have reversed his position yesterday, at least publicly, in saying that um, Starlink, which is uh, an Internet service that he has made available in Ukraine, um, which has helped your military communicate on the battlefield, that he will pay for it. This was after some back and forth to the Pentagon about not paying for it. What's the bottom line? Can your military depend on this for communication or not? Well, look, I have disagreed with Elon Musk on some of his views about Crimea, and we are happy to discuss it with him. But with regard to the company, we have started cooperation with Starlink, excellent cooperation. Before this phase of the war, we got the Starlinks in Ukraine very quickly. Uh, in some areas for humanitarian support, uh, it's the only connection that we have, and it's very important to continue having it. And I'm positive that we will find a solution there. And, so it's uh, not resolved yet? Uh, it's there, it's working, we will need to be working for a longer time. And look, we're proud to be one of the fastest growing Starlink country uh, globally too. But uh, the, the, the payment, who's going to pay it, I'm sure we will find the solution there. Because the Financial Times had reported that there were outages from the satellites that had a direct impact on the battlefield, particularly in the east of the country. Is this payment dispute hurting your military? Well, look, uh, there is no payment dispute Per se. I mean, there are discussions on that we need more and where we need them and how we will need them. But the actual reason for the outages is Russian aggression and the fact that they are booming our infrastructure and this, 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 this disrupting the, the, the uh, connectivity of all the cellular operators and trying to interfere also with, with others. Mm -hmm. We're trying to resolve it in many possible ways. And Starlink has been instrumental part of the solution. Um, France's president drew a lot of scrutiny this week because he said if Russia carries out a nuclear attack on your country, that his country would not respond with nuclear weapons. Um, what exactly is the level of risk right now from the nuclear threat, whether it's from tactical weapons on the battlefield or what's happening at your nuclear power plant? We cannot rule out Anything, and as you as you said, you know the nuclear threat is already there because Russians illegally control one of the largest nuclear plants in Europe, 
and the situation there deteriorates as it's not returned to Ukraine because it's the, the personnel there is not in the in the quantity that needs to be there. They are threatened uh, by Russians. We, we, we don't know exactly what happens to them. And the, the station has to be returned to Ukraine in order to decrease the risk. So this is a big risk. And we need Russia to get out. With regard to the use of nuclear weapons, uh, uh, I think, again, it's it's issue, it's much bigger than Ukraine. We in Ukraine will... Uh, resist and we will not give up regardless of what Russian Federation is used against us. We have, uh, I think, proven it from rockets to atrocities to anything that they try to, to, uh, to do in Ukraine. It doesn't break our will. So there is no point for Russian Federation to use anything else because it will not stop us in defending our homes. With regard to the global response, it has to be very harsh even for the talks of Russian Federation and Putin about using the nuclear weapons, because this is a clear red line. This is on, you know, uh, on what the whole security infrastructure of Europe and global is built. So when the French president says something like that, does it muddy that line? Does it blur that line? Well, I just, I just hope that everyone understands that the way it should be understood. In 1994, Ukraine became uh, the country that voluntarily gave up the third largest nuclear arsenal and received assurances of our safety mm -hmm. because we gave up our nuclear weapons. And uh, if a nuclear weapon will be used by a nuclear power, an aggressor against non-nuclear country like Ukraine, then the whole uh, nuclear deterrence uh, system is going to be under risk. So mm -hmm. I think we all together cannot allow Russian Federation to use it. Ambassador, thank you very much for your time. Always good to have you with us. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We turn now to our political panel. Rachel Bade of Politico is here with us and Karun Demirjan of The Washington Post. They're the authors of Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. Good morning to you, ladies. Good morning. So this is a pretty in-depth autopsy, as you can see by the size here, of um, what you lay out as strategic missteps, in, in many ways by Democrats themselves, in their attempt to hold the former president uh, accountable. The impeachment work, Senate didn't convict. It feels like it's full of these moments where history could have gone in a different direction. And you lay that all out here. Why do you think it's important to do that? Yeah, so there's this prevailing wisdom. There's sort of two things we're going to be challenging here in this book and our reporting. The first one is that Trump's acquittals, uh, both of them were inevitable. We find, as you mentioned, a whole bunch of pivotal moments where things could have gone the other way. Moderate Democrat or moderate Republicans who behind the scenes were freaking out about Trump's behavior and came so, so close to voting either to impeach or convict, but for certain things that Democrats had done that alienated them, or times when Democrats uh, put pressure on their own investigators not to do a full investigation to try to make the strongest case possible to the public that Trump was dangerous. Uh, and so we challenge that. The second sort of preconceived notion we challenge is that, you know, uh, there's this sort of sentiment out there that Republicans just sort of turned a blind eye to everything Trump did, and that's why he got away with everything while Democrats were doing the best they can to make the strongest case publicly. But again, we find a lot of examples where Democrats were putting their political concerns over strategic fact-finding uh, to just try to lay out the case. And, and privately, they have told us that they sort of, they didn't, they did half-baked impeachment and that they didn't make the strongest case possible. And some of them have regrets. And Karin, I mean, in some ways, the January 6th committee is a continuation of this case. 
Um, do you think that it addressed some of these mistakes as you were laying out? I think that the work that January 6th committee has done in pulling in Republican witnesses, in making sure they fight their subpoenas all the way through the courts, is by itself a recognition that they pulled some punches when they were actually going after Trump during the first two impeachments and the first two impeachment trials. Um, we, we are seeing the corrective action, basically, taking place in the way and the procedures in which they've go, gone forward with the January 6th committee's investigation, which is going over a lot of similar ground as at least the second impeachment and trial did. And so that is almost a tacit acknowledgement of, you know, we had the opportunity to take these steps almost two years ago, and we chose not to take them. And I think in this book, we, we question, we look at those intra-party fights, basically, that stopped those steps from happening. These moments where, but for a couple more hours sometimes, but for, you know, a person's sense of confidence versus their fear of being able to, you know, actually mm -hmm. use the congressional, it's the constitutional heft of the power that they had to check a president, things may have been able to go a different way. And so, yes, it's, it's, it's clearly a, a case where there were opportunities for them to go after witnesses, to run down subpoenas that they didn't take in the past, that they are trying to correct in the present, but Trump's not in office anymore. And, there was and you can't have the same result. From the very top, from Speaker Pelosi. Very That's top. right. That's right. We have reporting in the book that on January 6th, Pelosi herself shut down an effort by some of her members to try to impeach that Trump that very night. And, you know, there was like, McCarthy was furious. Republicans were just as upset as Democrats that night. I mean, what would have happened if they had just done that, put it on the floor? We'll never what? know, of course. Um, well, that's a great question, uh, but there was it was not just Pelosi, right? It was Chuck Schumer uh, and his staff who we learned through our reporting would put sort of pressure on Jamie Raskin's impeachment team uh, to do a quick trial, to not summon and call and test in court in their subpoenas to go after people like Mike Pence's aides, which now the January 6th committee is doing that. But back then they just wanted the investigation to move quickly, the trial to be over with, to sort of save Biden's presidency from this messy business of impeachment. Mm -hmm. I want to, because what you referenced there reminds me of what we just heard of this past week from the committee with this video, the public at least had never seen before. I'm going to play some of it here in a minute. Um, and just for our viewers, this is where congressional leaders had been evacuated to a, a safe place out in Virginia during the attack. And you'll hear Speaker Pelosi and the Senate Majority Leader talking to the Attorney General at the time, acting one, Jeffrey Rosen. Um, and you'll see that Republicans are standing there alongside the, the Democrats at one point. They're breaking the law in many different ways. And quite frankly, much of it at the instigation of the President of the United States. And now, uh, if he could, could at least uh, somebody. Yeah, why don't you get the president to tell them to leave the Capitol, Mr. Attorney General, in your law enforcement responsibility? A public statement, they should all leave. This cannot be just we're waiting for so-and-so. We need them there now, whoever you got. How soon in the future can you have the place evacuated, pulled, you know, cleaned out? Uh, I don't want to speak for the leadership that's going to be the responsible for executing the, uh, the, the operation, so I'm not going to say that because they are being on the ground and they're the actors. Well, just pretend, just pretend for a moment it was the Wendabon or the White House or some other entity that was under siege. And let me say, you can logistically get people there as you make the plan. And ultimately, we hear later from the vice president, Mike Pence, speaking to Speaker Pelosi, authorizes the movement to, to eventually happen. But, Karen, you see Republican leaders there gathered with Democrats in this moment. How is it that there was no quick action? Well, as our reporting shows in a piece that actually, an excerpt that ran in The Atlantic this morning, um, the Republicans were there crossed the hall to meet with the Democrats. We're in this moment in this mindset where they were basically saying, we're done with the White House. We've got to work together here to make this happen. You had people working the phones on both sides of the aisle. McConnell was doing the exact same thing as the Democrats, trying to get people to move towards the Capitol. It's, it's, uh, it's surprising that even with all of that effort, it did still take hours for that help to arrive. But it shows you that this was a moment where kind of everybody was working working together to achieve the same ends, which is striking in itself, given how quickly that coalition splintered shortly thereafter. Um, Rachel referenced a moment ago that there was this moment, that our reporting showed this moment, the night of January 6th, where after they left that terrible crisis hours, they're back on the floor of the, in, in the Capitol trying to uh, conclude the Electoral College results. 
And uh, rank-and-file Democrats approached the leaders with an impeachment resolution saying, let's do this now. Let's capitalize on that anger. Let's capitalize on this galvanized sense of it. We're all in this together and the party lines don't matter. And Pelosi decides not to go for it in that moment. She talks at another point in that video about being ready to throw a physical punch at President Trump, but she pulled the constitutional punch they could have potentially leveled in that moment on that day. Yeah, I think the most striking thing about Fort McNair and what was happening was that it was really the first time in Trump's, you know, four years of Trump's presidency that you saw congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle sort of come together to try to bring Trump to heel. I mean, you know, McConnell, before he went over to the Democrats' room, and by the way, we have this bizarre color uh, in the book about how, for some reason, Republicans and Democrats were escorted to different rooms at Fort McNair despite this emergency. And they're each trying to get through to the Pentagon. They're each trying to figure out why is the National Guard not moving. And McConnell, at one point, you know, he's, his, his staff is trying to get him on the phone with top defense leaders. They're put on hold. <laughs> and people are like, why are Republicans were furious? Why, why, are he, why is he putting on hold? So, you know, he crosses the room. And again, he goes and finds Pelosi and Schumer and says, we've got to work together. They Together, they were not able to get answers from the Pentagon about why mm -hmm. things were taking so fast. And so they all agree that the only person they can really turn to right now is not Trump, it's Mike Pence. And so they call him, and that's where we have this sort of clear the Capitol order. Yeah. It's sort of the backstory of how Pence got to that moment. It was because Hill leaders together were, were pleading with him to do something. And, and it's, it's a powerful read. It's a powerful moment. And ultimately, um, it raises even more questions. Yeah. Uh, about their path we're on. Ladies, congratulations on the book. We'll leave it there and be right back. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We want to take a closer look now at the Georgia Senate race, one of those key races that could decide which party controls the Senate. Nicole Killian reports from Athens. Saturdays in the South are meant for college football. But it was Friday's debate featuring University of Georgia legend Herschel Walker that was the talk of the tailgate. It kind of reaffirmed what I already thought, that uh, Herschel Walker is not fit for office. In what way? Uh, doesn't know policy, um, has clearly fabricated parts of his life. First Walker has a good heart, you know, and uh, we believe in, you know, a lot of similar things. In what might have been their only face-to-face -face debate Friday night, the GOP challenger and Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock made their cases to Georgia voters. This race is about who's ready to represent Georgia. He's for Joe Biden, I'm for Georgia. Dogged by recent reports that he allegedly paid for a woman's abortion, Walker issued another denial. That's a lie. My opponent has a problem with the truth. But on abortion rights, he appeared to soften his stance, backing off a total ban. I support the Georgia heartbeat bill because that's the bill of the people from Governor Kemp. And I said that has exceptions in it. Walker repeatedly tied Warnock to President Biden. Can you tell me why he voted with Joe Biden 96% of the time if he was standing for Georgia? When asked about their respective standard bearers in 2024, Walker eagerly endorsed former President Trump, but Warnock was noncommittal. Would you support President Biden running for a second term in 2024? I've not spent a minute thinking about what politicians should run for what in 2024. But it was this exchange that went viral as the candidates clashed over law enforcement and Walker's claims of being a police officer. I've never pretended to be a police officer. And 
And, and I've, never, I've never threatened a shootout with the police. I am with many police officers. You have a prop. Yes. That is not allowed, sir. A Walker 8 tells CBS News that was an honorary badge from a local department, but in a sign of just how critical the stakes are here, former President Obama is set to campaign in Georgia later this month, one of many stops he'll make before the midterms. No word if President Biden or former President Trump will also come down here. Margaret? Nicole, we will be watching. Thank you. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, former Chief Economist of the Labor Department Betsy Stevenson, the Ukrainian Ambassador to the United States Oksana Makarova, Politico reporter Rachel Bade, and Washington correspondent Karun Demirjian, the authors of Unchecked. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. It's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.